TGIM, Timari. This is episode 309. Honestly, just meeting and actually physically talking to people in recovery and connecting and sharing, you know, really opening up and being honest with people and having real conversations. I feel I'm myself really at peace when, when those things happen. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Odette Kressler. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Stephen. Stephen took his last drink on January 24th, 2020. He is from Austin, Texas, and he is 33 years old. All righty, let's work on finding your better you. I was scrolling through my Instagram feed the other day, and I saw a post pop up written by Johan Hari. It said, the pleasures of connecting with people are much greater than the pleasures of judging people. This quote got me thinking, and it reminded me of a recent podcast that I had heard. Someone was talking about the way we show up to conversations, how we show up to conversations. If we decide to show up genuinely and curious about others, if we decide to actively listen instead of mentally checking out then we can really connect with people. I mean, because how many times are we chatting with someone and we're just going over the million things that we have to do in our brain and we're just nodding and I don't want to say pretending like we're listening, but sometimes we are kind of pretending like we're listening. So what happens when we really connect with people? Then we understand people for who they are. Only then can we actually see people. And isn't that what we all want? to be truly seen, to be truly heard? What do you think would happen to the addiction stats in our world if we all simply became better listeners? I'm comfortable in placing a bet and saying that the stats would drop because inevitably, if we were better listeners, then we would all feel more connected. When we are living in fear, we judge. And when we judge others, people can feel it. And then they get fearful and by default, start judging other people as well. It's this shitty cycle. Although I'm not specifically talking about how to quit drinking on this episode, I want to get to a layer that I think is an important factor in our journeys. We can only take bigger steps into our healing when we feel safe. Not just physically safe, but also emotionally safe. And while it's important to talk about everything that enables us to drink, like the role of big alcohol in society and the narratives that already exist and how people normalize drinking, I also think it's important that we talk about our human behaviors. A part of the solution that isn't only up to us who are struggling with drinking, but up to everyone. Being better to each other. Being curious versus douchey. Listening to understand instead of listening to reply. Holding space for other people and their feelings. Caring more about being connected than about being right. Sometimes we act judgmental towards other people as we can't see beyond their first layer. We think we can't gain anything from a certain person when the truth is we can learn so much from each other. How neat would it be if everyone suddenly realized that every single person can be a teacher to us in a way, that when we actually open ourselves up to people, we actually end up winning. 
Everyone ends up winning, actually. It's a win-win fiesta. The cool thing about being a better listener and my theory on this of how this would reduce addiction rates is that it doesn't only benefit people who are struggling with alcohol. It benefits everyone. This type of behavioral tweak has so much power. It has the power to heal so much. And it's free. The irony of it, I guess, is that it's actually a pretty difficult task to be present to be fully there with someone when you're having a conversation, we are so distracted. But we can all try it, yeah? Being aware of it is the first step. Can we be more curious and less douchey? Can we see how this can impact our relationships? All right, eso es todo. And before we hear from Steven today, let's hear from my favorite resource on this journey, Cafe Ari. For years, I tried to control my drinking on my own but I always felt alone and like I needed something else. When I discovered Cafe RE, I realized there were so many people just like me looking for a better life. Cafe RE is a private, unsearchable Facebook group that provides 24-7 access to a community of people whose goal it is to live a life without alcohol. With supportive and educational webinars hosted throughout the week, there are plenty of opportunities to connect with others on the same path. Cafe RE is a place where we grow and learn together. And with golden rule number 22, we have a lot of fun while doing it. For just $19 a month, you'll have access to the community, all of our online webinars, the opportunity to attend in-person meetups, get discounts on sober travel trips, and get assigned an accountability partner. 15% of monthly membership even goes towards our service project, where we partner with nonprofits to help those affected by addiction. Head over to recoveryelevator.com and use the promotional code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. We hope to see you there. Steven, how are you today? I'm doing well, Odette. Thank you. It's a privilege to be on with you. So happy that we're finally here. I know we waited for a couple of weeks, so thank you for your patience. And let's get right to it. When was the last time you had a drink? January 24th of 2020. Quite the year to get sober. I keep telling people who at the beginning of the year, had no idea what was in store for all of us. It has been a very unique experience, to say the least. Can you give listeners a little background on yourself? Can you let us know where you're from? Do you have a family? What are your hobbies? What do you do for a living? And what do you like to do for fun? Oh, I love it. And I did get a sneak peek where you are sitting right now. And I did see a Peloton in the back corner. Do you like the bike as much as I do? I love it. It, it has been an amazing component in my life, uh, especially during the, the quarantine period. So it's it's been great. Yeah, me too. I really love it. And I know there's a handful of us in Cafe RE who have the bike and we have yet to organize a, a ride together, but it's a great tool. And I love that you incorporate exercise. I'm a big proponent of just changing our state and our emotions and our bodies through moving them. So I'm glad that that's something you enjoy as well. All right. And give listeners some background on your history with drinking, Stephen. When did you start? When did you realize alcohol wasn't serving your goals? And what got you on this journey with us? My first drink I took at the age of 15. It was just kind of one of those. Somebody got it. Uh, It was a weekend. And I guess I was just kind of curious, a little bit of peer pressure, maybe. I think I got drunk off of like two beers and don't really remember the night. But I do recall from that, from that moment is it finally kind of made, I finally had found something that kind of made me feel relaxed and, and free. And 
to where I could just kind of, I felt like I could kind of be myself. And so in high school, I was a competitive uh, tennis player. So tennis always kind of kept me somewhat stable. I mean, I always had early practice and tournaments and things like that. So the drinking was kind of just more weekends occasionally. I mean, but I never really got that crazy. But however, the way I learned how to drink was if uh, if you do get it, the purpose is to get drunk. There was no, uh, let's sit around and have one or two and discuss current events. It was, we're going to do it, we're going to do it. So carried that with me um, into college and was a scholarship athlete in college. So I still kind of had that as a stabilizer, but the drinking was still kind of that binge drinking mentality and behavioral pattern. And you know, other than few dumb incidents. I mean, nothing, nothing too crazy and some bad hangovers. So, you know, I just kind of, kind of kept it going because it was ex- uh, accepted and kind of expected and a way to blow off steam. And transitioning from that in 2008, I joined the military to be an airborne ranger. And that, that is kind of what ramped up, ramped up my drinking kind of to another level. It was you know, kind of an extremely stressful environment. All the training that was kind of done, at least at that level, was all about inducing stress to just to make sure that when you are put in a stressful situation, when you're when we deployed, you know, to a combat zone, that we would be able to handle it. And that's kind of the mentality behind that. But all that stress from deployments overseas and even training in the United States, something has to be done with that. And I know they've done a lot. They've done a much better job of dealing with it um, now with mental health and things like that. But back then, let's just say they weren't going to take, uh, take us out and meditate and do some yoga after, uh, after deployments and those things. I mean, the, the alcohol in the military culture is so encouraged. It's binge drinking. You have a lot of, you know, quote unquote, alpha males together who kind of work hard, play hard essentially. So that is kind of where the drinking really kind of escalated. I never drank during the week. It was just kind of on weekends or when I would come home from deployments. Uh, and my family, I mean, I would have a few nights where I'd you know, come home and not know where I was, but everybody kind of overlooked it like, well, he deserves it because he's served his country and you know, that's just normal. I left the military in 2015 and uh, went right into working. I got a job as a um, tennis instructor at a tennis academy here at a, here at a school um, in Austin. And I just, uh, you know, it's hard kind of transitioning just because everything's new and you're kind of missing that sense of camaraderie and I kind of a sense of purpose. And, you know, unfortunately for me that the the alcohol followed me and I no longer had like a, you know, something at 5 a.m. to be present for. So the drinking kind of escalated from there. It was never wake up and drink, but it was it just kind of became that pattern of finish work pick up, uh, pick up a bottle or whatever, um, drink until I could get to my, you know, what I would kind of call my happy place, which was me kind of just being by myself and kind of trying to chase that perfect buzz. And I would always usually overshoot it, push it too far, but wake up, feel guilty, feel horrible, but power through, go to work. I mean, on the, on the outside, everything looked fine, but, uh, but I was, I was hurting big time on the inside. It's kind of that uh, that military mentality of, I mean, we're kind of taught to learn how to suffer and just kind of gut through things no matter how bad they get. And I was able to kind of use that. Unfortunately, that mentality kind of worked against me when it came to finally admitting that alcohol was a problem in my life. But after about three to four years of kind of doing that, and I think my 
the first kind of rock bottom moment was every day after work, I could either go right and go to a gas station or a liquor store, or I could go left and go home. And every morning I would wake up and I would say, okay, today I'm going to go left. I'm not going to go right. But by the time six or seven o'clock hit, I always went right. I could not make myself go left. So I just decided after one really bad hangover, I wasn't really aware of what was out there from a recovery standpoint. I think that's fairly common if you're just kind of getting into it. So I just walked myself into AA and decided uh, I was going to try to try to get some help. I went all in for like, that's kind of my personality type. I just, I went all in for seven months. I did the steps, got a sponsor. I was sponsoring. I was chairing meetings. I think I suffered from a little bit of recovery burnout as well as I set expectations for myself in terms of how I should feel Mm -hmm. after a certain point of doing things. And I also don't think I was really ready at that time to give it up. And I also had a lot of friends and family telling me, you know, this is an overreaction. What are you doing? You don't need to be doing this, you know, just moderate. So I maintained seven months of sobriety uh, at that point and then kind of just decided I needed to go out and do a little bit more field research. So I did that for about five months. Nothing crazy happened, but it just went right back into that same cycle of horrible anxiety and uh, regret and guilt and uh, in the morning and then just kind of gutting through the day, functioning at about 50% and then just got stuck in that pattern again. So essentially that all kind of led up to this time around. So January 24th, I just decided and just kind of knew it in my heart of hearts that I was I was done drinking. Uh, I want to touch on so many things that you mentioned, but first and foremost, thank you for sharing. And it's a powerful story. I think that we're all unique and different. Our struggle for the most part is shared and we can find a lot of similarities. But I think just the track record of people who share and who are on the podcast is there's less of us who have this sort of reverse intervention where you are so sure and you, like you said, you're just being fully honest with yourself and you know there's a problem, but then the people around you see you as so high functioning that people sometimes just don't want to believe that we have as big of an issue that we know we have. And it sounds like you and I have that in common. So I think that that ends up being a little bit harder to navigate because we already justify so much. And it's like another layer of available justification and enabling. Absolutely. And what I like to tell myself is they they only saw probably 10% of my drinking. So their their perception was not accurate and it was very skewed compared to what was the truth. Yeah, perception is reality and their experience is only, like you said, a, a chunk of, of your life and a chunk of interactions compared to you who has to be with yourself 24-7. Tell me a little bit more about in the military where you, you said that at this point you were still more on the wavelength of binge drinking. And I think from what I collected, that kind of shifted into daily drinking, but not until you were out of the military. During your time serving the military, did you have thoughts that questioned your relationship with alcohol or did those come later? The only questions or thoughts that I had was just, you know, in the midst of just really bad hangovers or things of that nature, like maybe I shouldn't drink as much or maybe I should take a couple of weeks off. It was never my drinking behavior is a problem just because I was surrounded by so many people who drank the exact same way. And honestly, that kind of drinking and behavior was kind of encouraged, actually. Yeah, I mean, for me, I'm from Mexico. And 
the the whole culture and dynamic behind the military has been new to me because it's something that we don't have in Mexico the way that it's established here in the States. And I'm not an expert, but I do know that a lot of vets and people who have served struggle because there is a lot of PTSD that it just isn't processed. There's a lot of trauma and sometimes as we like calling it little t trauma because it's just this consistent daily approach of how the training is or big t trauma when you do encounter intense life situations when you're overseas or whatever the case may be but it's it's a lot of trauma that builds up and I do feel like you said the culture is like use drinking to cope to celebrate to get through it but then at one point or another I mean I know I'm not an expert like I said but I know that there's a lot of research and proof that shows that that ends up catching up with people once they're back home. And then it's like, how do you process all of this? Right. No, absolutely. And, you know, we, at least as a male, people in the military, men in the military are dealing with, you know, the trying to assume that stereotypical male role of being strong. And then also dealing with this, this expectation of, oh, you're in the military. So you're supposed to be even stronger and harder. And, guys are they're just walking around not feeling comfortable sharing what's going on or being their authentic selves or being vulnerable at all to let people know that they're hurting and alcohol could just kind of provide a temporary relief or a release and but the underlying issues the underlying problems never get solved and it just builds up and unfortunately one of the main reasons why people in the military either a get in trouble or b get kicked out of the military completely is directly due to alcohol yeah i wonder if they've ever caught on to that pattern, right? But, and I think even people that don't go to the military, like males in general, and I've seen that lately, there's a lot of content and males are like socially just showing emotion. I feel like even people who don't go to the military, males who don't go to the military have a hard time opening up. I mean, this is a blanket statement and a total stereotype, but I think slowly things are shifting because it's just this gender construct of you're the dude and you need to be tough like that's we're still there right and my view of what strength or being strong is totally shifted in recovery i mean it's it's easy to be quiet it's easy to act like everything's okay what's difficult is opening up what's being courageous is being vulnerable and sharing what's actually going on that's what strength really is yeah and asking for help absolutely you you mentioned too that you you were taught and there's this concept of like learning to suffer and learning learning to endure through the struggle. So I have a a different I've never asked this question but it just got, came to me as you were talking. Have you kind of shifted that to like learning to enjoy like that life doesn't have to be this daily struggle? Was that hard to kind of flip that over or have you even flipped that over? <laughs> Uh, great question. I think it's something that I'm still kind of working on because at least coming from a sports background as well as from the military, I was always kind of taught, well, you know, pain, things like pain is weakness leaving the body or, you know, through suffering, you get strength or just persevere and push through it, blood, sweat, tears, whatever it takes to, to get through something. And what I've kind of learned is that really kind of just works in the short term in terms of maybe achieving a short term goal. But in terms of the the emotional impact that that can have long term, 
it's big. And so it's for me, especially during recovery, Oh, I definitely had to teach myself that it's, it's okay when things are easy and it's okay to just kind of go with the flow and I don't have to attempt things that are just incredibly difficult all the time. And, but the biggest piece is I had to allow myself to surrender. I had to allow myself to admit to the fact that I could not moderate my drinking. I cannot control my drinking and I cannot live with alcohol in my life. And that was the biggest, because essentially what's, what's one word that you never want to admit to or say, or think about in the military and that's surrender. So to give up and just say, I can't do this. That was by far the hardest piece for me. Yeah. It sounds like you had to debunk, not just a lot of myths around alcohol, but just a lot of myths around life. And like this concept, like you, you're talking about of like, you have to work hard to earn things and, and, and you have to suffer. And I, this has been hard for me learning to relax, learning to enjoy. I'm sitting here in my little makeshift podcast room and there's a big little, big little, there's a, a big drawing that my daughter made and it's a, like a mandala and it says relax and enjoy the moment and it's like the simplest reminder but i have a really hard time or when i don't have a lot to do where i when i feel like i'm just like you said when things are easy and there's nothing really stressing me out sometimes i make myself stressed out because that was my norm for so long so i have to remind myself to just relax and enjoy and it seems so simple but it's really hard for me sometimes right and that personality type, and I think a lot of a lot of a lot of veterans deal with that as well when they transition out of the military because they're they're so used to operating and functioning at such a high level of stress, and then when that ends, and let's say now they're now they're like in the grocery store or something, and they're still you know on alert and kind of stressed out, and you know kind of you know they just get used to functioning. And trying to perform at very, very high levels of stress. So there is a definite um, decompression period that has to occur when veterans get out. And unfortunately, a lot of them turn to alcohol to help with that process. But in terms of emotional sobriety, it's not really addressing the problem. Yeah. So you did mention that when you went to AA and you kind of went all in and you were like, just tell me how to do this and I'm going to do all the things. But you you did say... I think I wasn't ready. So what what has been different this time? This time I I had to adjust that kind of all in with an expectation mentality because that, you know, that's kind of worked for me throughout the course of my life. If okay, here's give me a give me a give me an objective, tell me what I need to do, I'm going to do it and then I'm going to get the result that I want. I learned that I couldn't apply that to recovery because I mean, I had like seven months. So I was like, well, at eight months, I should be able to levitate by now. Or I should uh, I should just feel, I should have this, um, you know, incredible amount of serenity. I had expectations. That was the first thing that was, that was wrong. Because, I mean, who am I to really know what is going to happen to me? That's another thing I've had to come, you know, uh, really acknowledge. I think this time... This time as well, I'm much more tied into recovery uh, communities with actual people 
and really opening up to people about my struggles and then listening to their own, that, that connection has been, uh, foundational in my recovery. And I think the first time I may have gone into it, um, thinking that if I just quit drinking, I would be perfect. And whenever that didn't happen, cause I can't be perfect. That's what was really disappointing. But now my mentality is there is no possible way I can be the best version of myself if alcohol's in my life. And whatever that looks like, I'm perfectly happy with. Yeah, managing our expectations in recovery is something I definitely like double tapping on because especially like you said, when you went to AA, you went all in. A lot of people go all in in recovery and a lot of us shared that personality type where we're like, just tell me what to do. I want to do all the things perfectly. I want to just navigate through all of this. Give me the instruction manual and I'll do it. And then it's a roller coaster. And we I've had to learn at least to to manage those expectations and to just be okay with the with the okay days. And at the beginning, you said that when you tried alcohol, you realized that it made you feel relaxed and free. Have you found something else through sobriety that now makes you feel relaxed and free? I did mention running. I think running is running is kind of one of those things that gets me close to, I mean, when I'm, my body's feeling good, my mind's at peace and I'm just kind of, and things are just flying by. That's kind of really, you know, I really do feel relaxed and free at that point. I am really working on trying to just being, being okay with my own thoughts and in my, in my own head, because I think that's definitely going to be, going to be a piece of this. And then Honestly, just meeting and actually physically talking to people in recovery and connecting and sharing, you know, really opening up and being honest with people and having real conversations. I feel I'm myself really at peace when, when those things happen. What do you do when you get a craving, Stephen? I eat. <laughs> it's so simple, but it works. And I mean, whenever I was drinking, I... Um, I never wanted to eat whenever I was drinking because why would I want to eat? Because that would mess up, mess my buzz up. So it works today. You know, I eat and I try to put something good and healthy in my body. Maybe that's a, a shake or a smoothie or something like that, or maybe a green juice. But I just get something in my belly that fills me up. And usually that kind of takes care of it. But if, if that doesn't work, then I, I call and I reach out to, to other people who, who get this. And uh, we just kind of talk things out and that usually works. I've asked this question to, I think I've interviewed about 30 people at this point. Nobody has ever said I eat. And I think it's my favorite response to date because it works and I like food. So I like this answer. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. Uh, tell me how it has been just this year because you January is your date and you're a tennis instructor. So did you... What happened with work? Like, how was it with all the craziness? I find that at least for me at the beginning, routine really helps. But I mean, March is when things really got kind of crazy. So how how was it for you? Right. Yeah. Um, I was actually coming back from, from Mexico in March uh, <laughs> while all this was happening. The school where I, uh, where I work uh, shut down like most schools. And then, I mean, luckily for, luckily for me, like a lot of other teachers uh, or instructors, I was still getting a paycheck, but I mean, it was so early on in COVID. I was pretty much strict quarantining. Um, I didn't really go out much. And so, yeah, that that's where Cafe RE became instrumental. 
in my life with the, the webinars and just the connection in general. And yeah, it was just kind of kind of a waiting game at that point. At that time, I also um, was in a pretty serious relationship. So during this, I also got to, I've also been, you know, able to kind of experience a pretty serious breakup and then kind of navigate that, um, you know, being completely sober, which is a pretty difficult, difficult thing to do. But when you kind of get on the back end of it, you realize how much better that experience is when you're sober versus trying to drink through a breakup. Yeah, I actually just heard a podcast this morning with someone who's going through a divorce and and they they said they're sober too. And they said, I think even though grief is inevitable, I think that being sober during this separation, as hard as it is, it's kind of accelerating the grieving process, not like in a rushed way, but at least you're not like when you're drinking, you're just postponing, postponing. And then at some point you're going to have to confront it and at least... It's extremely hard to do, so I commend you, but at least you're not adding time to the pain that inevitably has to get processed through you. Right. And, you know, alcohol can distort things. I mean, that's kind of what it does chemically, right? I mean, it can, yeah. it can, it can distort my, you know, my feelings and things like that. And so just being able to be really present and emotionally sober for all this, it, it allows me to really just kind of be who I am and and really f- kind of understand what I want and then really navigate the present the navigate this process as 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 the real me. Yeah, what are things in your routine every day that help you just ground your decision that you're not going to drink today? Do you still have to do that left right thing? Are you back to work? <laughs> <laughs> um I'm yeah, I'm teaching uh I'm teaching a little you know, just some private lessons for now and tennis is in terms of social distancing tennis is pretty easy to do so yeah oh the left yeah the left right thing yes i go left now so and yeah. and if I, and if i do go right to the gas station i pick up you know i'll pick up some tobo chico or something but uh yeah it's i'm kind of getting to that you know i don't even i've kind of moved on to another phase now i mean i don't want to get complacent but it's it doesn't even really enter my mind when i leave work anymore but let's see. Yeah. What do I do on a daily basis? It's not to use what everybody else says, but it's, you know, it's really that connection with people in the recovery community, whether that's AA, Cafe RE, other people I've met, keeping good connection with them about my life, but also how their life is going. Um, that kind of, you know, that is the foundation for me. And then, I mean, really addressing just mind, body, and spirit in terms of what goes in to each. So I, I work with a holistic uh, kind of health coach to kind of work on my nu- the nutritional uh, piece of this. And then, you know, I go to therapy once a week and there's some spiritual and recovery literature that I kind of try to try to touch on on a daily basis. And uh, exercise is a huge component as well. And when all those things are kind of working together, it makes for a pretty good day. Yeah. That synergy definitely helps set you up for success. And even on the hard days, I think that it's helpful. And how have the interactions with family and friends, them knowing that perhaps, I don't know if when you went back out to do field research and then recommitted to the decision, are they just, do they know that's what you're doing now? And they're like, okay, well, I guess that's what he's doing. That was kind of essentially their reaction. Yes. I think they're able to see the version of Steven that really can be present for them and give his, give his best 
when he's around them. And I, I really think I've been able to kind of impact my family in, in more positive ways than I ever have in my life during this period. So they can kind of see it through my actions. And it's also sparked conversations with family members about their own drinking and maybe they want to cut back. So I just, I just try to try to use my actions to kind of speak louder than my words. Just in staying on your lane, we can be so impactful. I feel like the trap that a lot of the times people who stop drinking fall into is like trying to preach to the choir, like trying to tell people what to do or control others, which is a just a personality. What's it called? What do they what do they call it in the rooms? A uh, uh, defect. Yes, defect of character. This control. A lot of the times when we stop drinking, I think that it, the control is hard to let go of, and sometimes it's about controlling relationships or other people but it's really neat to hear that you've just by staying on your journey have managed to inspire and impact your family I think that's powerful I mean having young kids myself I'm like how can I be the best role model and it's actually not that complicated I think it's just in staying in the solution ourselves that's kind of all we can do right right and the kind of the quickly like the little the rock bottom moment led me to really get on this January 24th was I was visiting my family and I got really drunk the night before and I was hung over on the couch and I couldn't even get myself up to go eat lunch. And my little three-year-old nephew comes over and he's like, uncle Stevie, are you sick? And I'm like, Oh my, like, like that. And he just, he like tried to like, you know, put a blanket on me. I mean, I, I just like that crushed me. I'm like, here's this little child who thinks that I'm like sick when I'm just too hung over to make it to lunch. I'm like, what kind of example am I setting? And this is, this has got to stop. That was, that was pretty much the, that was the catalyst for everything that, that moment right there. Oh my gosh. I can't wait until he gets older and you can tell him about that. <laughs> I know. I know. Basically I know. change your life in a way that's pretty awesome. And and yeah, I mean, they have no filter and they just say it as it is. So I guess that's what he did. <laughs> He just, yeah, he's like, are you sick? What's wrong with you? I'm like, well, yeah, I am sick. I've been poisoning myself. Have you ever wondered or have you coined why you drink in the first place? I know you mentioned like I just used to do it socially just to get drunk with friends socially. But have you given a little more thought into like why? Yeah, so I've, I have really thought about this a lot. And I've been kind of digging into like childhood stuff as well with my therapist and other things like that, which can be really helpful. It can also be very hurtful and difficult to do. I grew up in a, in a household, not with, this was when my mother's uh, second husband, but not, not anymore, but just a very kind of intimidating, abusive uh, environment where I kind of had to walk on eggshells the entire time. And it was just kind of in fear. And so I think the drinking initially allowed me to just kind of be free of that and to not to not feel like I had to walk on eggshells. And eventually that just got to a point to where I I drank because it gave me that freedom. And then I was kind of repressing all of that. And then I kind of I think through through that experience, plus my military training, I got to a point where I really couldn't feel anything. All my emotions were just so repressed. I couldn't feel anything. So then it became, I wanted to drink to be able to feel anything in the hopes of just feeling like a human being again. Wow. It's crazy. Cause yeah, it's like a lot of the people use it out to numb, but it sounds like at one point you were like trying to get the opposite effect of like, help me feel something. Absolutely. I just completely shut down, um, that side of, of, of my mind. 
Have you found therapy to be super helpful? I have. I mean, my sometimes my therapist will joke and say, you know, you do all the analysis for me. I don't have to say anything. Mm -hmm. And I feel that's true. I mean, I feel like we kind of know ourselves better than most people, um, or, or at least we should. But just kind of having somebody to kind of talk things through with, kind of just get, I mean, same thing. Journaling can probably accomplish a lot of the similar things, but just having somebody to be kind of a sounding board. And I mean, she did, she did have me address, you know, the childhood stuff and a lot of those difficult areas that I would not have, I would not have gone there if it had been for her. So for that, I'm very grateful. Yeah. It's interesting because I think that for the amount of people that actually go to therapy, it's still extremely stigmatized. And I mean, I've been going to therapy for years and I, I like what you said. I feel like we find a lot of reflection and a lot of the answers when we just make the time to go within and maybe journal or like really grow that self-awareness. But for me, at least, I mean, my therapist is harsh. Like I'll go in there and she'll catch my blind spots. And I, I feel like what you said earlier, like perception is reality. And I feel like sometimes I'm so much in my head that I need somebody else's perception to help. and. I just wanted to take this moment since you did bringing up to encourage people and to not kind of give in to the stigma and things don't have to be rock bottom to find support or just to talk to someone. I think it's always helpful. Right. And, and it's kind of an exploration process. I mean, you, you never really know where these conversations or these things might go and you, you may not feel like you're discovering anything in the moment, but you could it could take you to places you never thought possible in terms of understanding yourself and your current situation. Has your sleep gotten better, Stephen? <laughs> uh, yeah, um, good question. So my that may be like the last piece of the puzzle that kind of needs to fall it well, <laughs> one one of the many pieces of the puzzle, but my sleep cycle was totally messed up in the military. we did we did a lot of things um, where we were on a reverse schedule, so kind of like shift worker nurses or doctors, uh, you know, up at night and sleeping during the day. So I think that kind of messed me up. And then also just kind of being in that heightened state of awareness and alertness all the time where, I mean, there were occasions where we would be asleep when we were on deployments and, you know, we'd get attacked or there'd be, you know, things of that nature. So I think I am really trying to get my system to kind of decompress and really be able to sleep. But I struggle with, you know, healthy sleep habits. I got in a bad habit of uh, watching like boring historical documentaries just to go to sleep because it would shut my mind off and kind of allow me to go to sleep. But of course, there's the light. So it's terrible for your sleep, apparently. And then, you know, if I can get a total of like six to seven hours, I'm pretty happy with that. So sleep, sleep, sleep could definitely improve and uh, but work in progress. Yeah, I'm sure, though, that like the anxiety my sleep was interrupted a lot because I also had anxiety when I drink and it was just, I may have gotten the same amount of time, but it just felt so different because I didn't wake up all jacked up, I guess. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. And forgot to touch on that, but briefly, yeah, the, the anxiety piece was huge in my recovery. I mean, I, it just got to where I was, I was anxious and I mean, I started having some panic attacks randomly throughout the day and that, that, I mean, I, 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 you know, I found the term anxiety, you know, the hangover anxiety, which, uh, which was so true for me. And 
oh, it causes horrible anxiety, but the alcohol was the cure for that in- temporary cure for that anxiety, unfortunately, but it was not the long-term cure. The, the, the anxiety and the panic stuff just got continued to get worse. And, um, and obviously the sleep's disrupted. Yeah. It's just a bad cycle to be in. And I'm glad, glad I'm out of it. Yeah. I'm glad as well. Did you ever go back to AA or have you considered going back to AA? Um, I have. Yes. So I am back kind of working, working through the steps again as well. I would say like, I've got, uh, I've got my, like, you know, my, my fingers in like different ponds. So, I mean, I'm, I'm like, I love cafe RE really involved there. I've kind of got the AA stuff and I've got some, you know, just some recover people that I know in recovery that aren't part of either. So I just have kind of more so focused on instead of just one thing, creating just a very big network because I mean, one thing may not feel like it's, it's a good fit or maybe you need to switch gears to something else. But I think it's just, for me, it's just been about expanding the network of, of different, different tools and organizations that I have to, to be a part of. Yeah. And it ebbs and flows. I know you said at the beginning also that you experienced some sort of a recovery burnout and that has been mentioned on here a couple of times and it, and it's true, you know, sometimes we need to change it up or try something new. And it's really cool to see that you're just building that network and that community because I mean, what works today may not work tomorrow, or you may go back to something that you hadn't done in a while. And it's just good to have, to have your tool belt. So I'm happy to hear that. All right, Stephen, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you can answer these questions in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabuloso. Are you ready? I am ready. All right. If you could talk to younger Stephen, what would you say? I would say stop trying to find clarity and happiness in a bottle uh, because you're not going to find it, trust me. And then I would probably also say what happened to you as a child is not your fault. Just be free and go fly. What book are you reading right now? Oh, gosh. (laughs) My book, yeah, my book collection is pretty, pretty, I get made fun of it all the time, uh, fun of for it all the time. Um, I am reading a book called Claim Your Power, and it is pretty, it is one of those like 40 day kind of dig deep inside yourself books. It's, it's all about trying to find your purpose and the premises without a purpose. We're all kind of rudderless. So it's, it's been a pretty, pretty cool experience. Who makes fun of that? I would read that book. <laughs> I think I think it's more about the the quantity of books that I have. You know how it is in re- in recovery, where every every hour of the day you're getting another book recommendation. Yeah. And before long, I had to you know delete my Amazon app on my phone. Oh yeah, what is your favorite ice cream flavor? So there is a there's a local ice cream place here in Austin called Amy's Ice Cream, and they make a Mexican vanilla, which is the best thing I've ever had in my life. They use, um, yeah, it sounds simple, but it's incredible. Sounds delicious. Next time I'm in Austin, I'm going to have to try that. Vanilla. Mex- Amy's ice cream, you said. I'm making a list yes. with all of these responses. <laughs> <laughs> what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze? I would say that there is no perfect recovery program. Um, you just have to kind of find, find your own path. Don't look back and you aren't alone. There are so many people every day who are choosing to live their best life alcohol free. 
And before we depart, give listeners your own. You may have to say adios to booze if line. You may have to say adios to booze if you jump out of a plane drunk because you are still drunk from the night before. Ooh. Yep, I agree with you on that one. Thank you, Stephen. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate you. I loved our chat and I can't wait for everybody to hear this. Thank you so much. Take care. Have a good day, Stephen. You too. Very well, Timari. That's a wrap on our interview. Before I say adios, I want to remind you all that only you know what is best for you. Protect your energy. Protect your recovery. What works for some may not work for others. And here at Recovery Elevator, we are firm believers that each and every one of you should recover your own way. As long as we're together, continuing to motivate, encourage, and inspire each other, then we're all on the right track. It's neat to zoom out and see that we are all part of this collective movement, of this new narrative. We're all challenging big alcohol and we're helping people see things differently. You are all a part of it. Remember that you're not alone and together is always better. Recovery Elevator, when you show up as you are, you make all of the difference for yourself and for the world. I love you guys. Get out of the story. Get out of the story and use the mind to locate the body. Move the energy inside by talking, walking, and most importantly, trusting that the body already knows how to do so. We cannot fight a drinking problem or an addiction because it's trying to tell us something and we must listen. It's nudging us in a certain direction. Listen to the heart and follow your gut intuition. This will never mislead you. People often ask me, what's the one thing I can do? response is always the same. Burn the ships. It's these repetitive thoughts that always drive you to make the same decisions. It's these familiar decisions that always lead to the same actions. It's these familiar actions that always result in the same outcomes. It's these same outcomes that constantly result in the same emotions. It's these familiar emotions that give you those familiar feelings. These feelings that always lead to the same thoughts, thereby completing the cycle. If you can recognize this, you will be empowered to change your thinking.